Life Audio. Hey, welcome to Gospel Rant. I'm Dr. Bill Singard with Gospel App Ministries, www.gospel-app.com. I am starting a brand new series. This is actually the third podcast in that series. It's on the Song of Songs of Solomon in the Old Testament. And look, like I've said, this is going to be likely a different take than you've heard before. I think that we have been confusing and uh, well-meaning, but we've been discouraging the use of this book in its appropriate place. So my take is that it is perhaps the most powerful gospel presentation in the Old Testament. I mean, you've heard of allegorical and literal. My view is that it is prophetic gospel on the line of, say, the Gomer story in Hosea. I mean, how would you describe the Gomer story? Is it a parable? Is it? It's not an allegory. It's not literal. Um, I, I would say it's kind of a parable, but a prophetic gospel. And for the most part, I think we Christians have historically treated it like that embarrassing uncle, you know, in the family. And that's too bad. Love to get your feedback, Bill, at gospel-app.com. By the way, I've made a paper at SBL on this and and was well-received. So uh, I think I'm on the right track and I've been working on this for 15 years. Yeah, it's time to get the dialogue uh, moving further. But before we get into the meat of of this introduction, let's take a break for a word from our sponsors. We'll see you in a minute. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. All right, uh, look, is, isn't the song erotic? <laughs> I mean, right? So that, that's what embarrasses people. And the right answer is yes and no. And that's the heart of the issue. The consensus appears that the song is a collection of largely sexually charged love poetry that's not suitable in many circles. Yet in the 117 verses, it's a small little book, in the 117 verses in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, Apart from the numerous images related to sex and intimacy, the Greek word for companionship, adelphos, uh, is used 24 times. Another Greek word for friend, plesion, is used eight times. Even more importantly, the words that most describe the love of God himself in the Greek, agape and agapao, the verb, are used 11 and eight times respectively. I have to tell you, the song's take on romance doesn't appear to be so carnal. We've, I think we have misconstrued the love that bonds the lovers in the song. And perhaps that's the most challenging and, and important concept to grasp in the book. I mean, in this, in this particular podcast, I want to explore the possible historical reasons that 
you know, the majority of interpreters of the songs have unknowingly buried the lead to our detriment. Okay? So real quickly, summary of the interpretive approaches. In the next podcast, I think I'm going to deal with with the interpretive school that I bring to the table, the prophetic gospel approach. But in, in this particular podcast, we're going to look at really how the book has slid to become an embarrassment to so many. All right, consider the following spectrum. I want you to imagine it in your head, uh, the spectrum of interpretations of the Song of Songs. On the left-hand side are the various literal schools of interpretation. They're the ones most popular today. That would be the natural, the literal, the dramatic, the typological, the wedding week. And each one's unique. Everyone has their own ideas. But all the literal camps would agree that the song is primarily related to the love and romance between a legitimate man and a woman, a human, human beings, not, not, uh, not involving God primarily. And then on that spectrum, on the far right, would be the allegorist, who see in the poetry mystical paths for our spirit souls to be joined intimately uh, with a being, with the spirit of God himself. It's a spiritual journey. So I'm going to suggest, while there are differences on that spectrum, literalist and allegorical, they all have one thing in common beneath the surface. They would both be very uncomfortable with the erotic images in the song. And both seem to be attempting to protect uh, one degree or another, the holiness of God from being soiled with interaction with sinful, corrupted flesh. So, all right, uh, and there's a word for that, Christian dualism. I want to point to a philosophy, a concept that really is capturing the driving force of, of the entire spectrum's DNA. Both seem to be influenced by Christian dualism. All right, what, what is that? Well, uh, the earliest philosophy of dualism comes from, as far as we know, Plato, at least, and it was embraced by the Christian Gnostics in the early centuries of the Common Era. Uh, they would hold that humans consist of two ent entities. There's the body, flesh, in the Greek, sarks, and soul, spirit, in the Greek, suke. And by the way, this was, in most of the, I mean, up until the Reformation, most commentaries on the Song of Songs were allegorical and were terribly affected by dualism. And here it is. Since the fall, Adam and Eve, carnal flesh, sarks, is corrupted and, listen to this, largely unredeemable. Gnostics went a step further and they said that the material world, which includes the flesh, is actually evil. And so what do we mean by flesh? That would include human passions, desires, a lot of emotions, and of course, sex. And Paul, on the surface, seems to agree. And I'm going to su suggest that we've been reading him wrong. But in Galatians 5.17, he says that the spirit and the flesh are working against each other. Here's what he says. For the sinful nature, sarks, desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other, so you do not do what you want. So, so. It's not really dualism because I think Paul, I think it's clear Paul is talking about the Holy Spirit there. Um, here's Romans 7, 18. I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sarks, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. In Matthew 26, 41, Jesus tells his, remember sleepy disciples, the spirit is willing, but the sarks is weak. So listen, uh, if we looked at the song through these dualistic lenses, 
uh, you know, the Neoplatonists, the Neo-Gnostics, uh, it must be either about strictly human pursuits, which is the literalist, or divine mysteries about the mystical spiritual love of God that have to be unraveled uh, to be understood, so allegorical. Um, so it has to be literal, husband and wife, human, or totally spiritual, separate from the flesh. That's, that's the spectrum. The two camps seem to agree that the editors, the writers of the song, can't be implying in any way that God's love is fleshly, sarks, erotic, because God's not eros, uh, where we get the word erotic. God can't be portrayed as leering into the queen's bedroom in one of the songs, or worshiping his bride's naked perfection as a love-struck teen might. It, they would say it's wildly inappropriate, and look, on the surface, I get that. Um, so anyway, real briefly, let's look at the two camps, allegorical. The allegorical school, like I said, it reigned supreme in Jewish and Christian interpretation of the songs from ancient times until the Reformation for sure and beyond. God is, here's what they say, God is above and beyond corruption and must not even look upon sin. Therefore, he can't be associated with lust, eros, sex, or related lower human desires and emotions. So when we read of the song, in the song of the king exhibiting fleshly drives, desire uh, for his bride, the queen, it's got to be referring to something in the heavenly realm, something spiritual. It's an allegory, something mysterious until we've been enlightened and understand the allegories, we understand the secrets. Yeah, but okay, that's spiritual, but we're human. What are we to do? Well, to, to get there... The allegorist would say you starve your flesh, you feed your spirit, your soul through spiritual disciplines such as asceticisms. And if we did the disciplines consistently and enough, our redeemed spirits and souls would escape our flesh and ultimately find intimacy and wholeness in the bosom of the spirit God. And these disciplines historically can be rigorous, like fasting, continual prayer, withholding of sleep, celibacy, self-infliction of pain. And only then... Can you hope to defeat your sarks, the erotic nature, and purify your spirit? Uh, yeah, so, yeah, sounds like fun, right? Well, let me give you some example of interpretation of allegorists. This is the second century church father, Origen. Uh, one commentator jokes that Origen did to the Song of Songs what he did to his own body. He denatured it and transformed it into a spiritual drama free from all carnality. Oh, my gosh. He was definitely not much fun at parties. So um, you, can, you can sense the embarrassment of finding such a book in the canon. Um, so they're trying to, uh, allegorists are, are trying to explain the obvious sexual image, images. So the two breasts in the, song of, in the songs four or five, let me read that. Uh, the, your two breasts are like two fawns, like twins of a gazelle that browse among the lilies until the day breaks and the shadows flees. I will go to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of incense. So some would say the two breasts are the old and new covenants. Yeah. And the hill of incense, right? I'll go to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of incense, which is, I mean, poetically her breast, uh, intimacy. They would say that's the spiritual high of those who succeed in crucifying the flesh. Hippolytus, about 200 uh, common era, interprets the, this next verse as Christ bringing the saints into the church. This is the, in the prologue, 
chapter 1, verse 2 to, two to 4. Take me away with you. Let us hurry. The, let the king bring me into his intimate chambers. We rejoice and delight in you. Uh, yeah. Uh, and Targum says that uh, let, let him kiss me with the kiss of his lips as God giving Moses the Ten Commandments. Um, Cyril of Alexandria looks at 1-3 and says, you know, the, my lover is to me a sachet of myrrh resting between my breasts. And of course, that's Christ between the Old and New Testaments. Well, you get the idea. Uh, it's, it's kind of comical. Here, here's another one. Um, uh, the, uh, but really, the most egregious is, is uh, the lover's pure desire to, to romantically caress his wife's breast. Uh, they see it better as a theologian excited to study the Old and New Testaments. And here we go. Your two breasts are like two fawns, like twins of the fawns of the gazelle. <laughs> so, look, yeah. I mean, if, if that's the case, I mean, seminaries would look a lot different. I, I assure you. <laughs> I, I assure you. All right, listen, this is probably a good place to take a break while you're shaking your head in amazement. When we get back, we'll look at the literal school. We'll see you in a moment. Okay, welcome back. Um, and look, allegorist, good godly men and women, they're trying to, 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 to please God and to ascend to God and to have fellowship with God. That, that's absolutely right. Uh, how they get there is all I'm pushing against. All right, how about the literal school, the other side of the spectrum? A lot of diversity in this school. Some understand the song as a historical account of a love between a historic man and a historic woman, for instance, Solomon and the Shulamite. Others say it's a two-character drama. Some say three-character drama. I find those interpretations very, very strained. And others see it as a collection of love poetry uh, and, a, and a variety of, of points of view on that. Um, so what do they all have in common? Like I said, like the allegorists, they want to be careful to not confuse God's spiritual agape with human sarks eros. Um, the characters of the song, they would say, are very human. And through their successes and failures, we learn about human love. And it's not about a spiritualized journey in the heavenly realms. It's the biblical wisdom primer on committed love between a man and a woman, between a husband and a wife. So they are they're united in their opposition of any spiritualizing of the text. So it's wisdom, biblical wisdom literature about human love. The poems are God's trailhead for needy lovers, husbands, and wives. So the song makes us aware of, quote, the feelings, desires, concerns, and hopes and fears of two young lovers without the need to allegorize or, uh, or dramatize to escape the clear erotic elements of the text. So the literal interpretation is the way to go. And in all cases, the song's goal is to make us understand what passionate, exclusive, committed marital love, that's important, committed marital love, looks like between one man and one woman. All right? So here's what some say, uh, some literal say. The Song of Songs is Hebrew love poetry that depicts the beauty and mystery of sexual love within the context of marriage. Here's another. The Song of Songs is about marital love. Here's another. The song sings of lovers who court, then marry, and then work together in an ideal picture of life, family, and work. Uh, again, Song of Songs is a poem about love between a man and a woman. So, but what are we to make of the clearly sexual references? 
they would say that in all cases, the eroticism, the, the sexuality is either fantasizing pre-marriage during betrothal or godly sexuality and eros that can happen in a biblical context between a committed husband and a wife, right? So they just, have, I mean, the, the, if that's the, I mean, if you read the commentaries, the fantasizing is, I don't know, we, we would say it's inappropriate today. I think most would. Uh, if they're not married, uh, wild fantasizing and very, very literal uh, sex and sexuality. But nevertheless, having justified those many passages as being suitable within a framework of human marriage, they try to make the case that then after we do that, then and once you see it as a biblical primer, you can also see if you look hard enough and careful enough in the hands of a godly exegete, you can find blurred reflections of, of God's love. But you got to be very careful, and it's got to be carefully scrubbed because, it, you know, God is just humiliating to refer to him as uh, this, this romantically pursuing uh, someone who uses sexual imagery to describe his love. It's just humiliating. We, we want, we're not going to go there, right? So in, in both allegorist and literalist, can't you just feel the embarrassment they're feeling? <sighs> and anyway, literalist, most works in the song would fall into this camp today. So back to our question, is the song erotic? Well, the allegorist would say that the song uses erotic imagery to incite our human desire for more of an experience of God's spiritual agape. So it, it turns us on, drives us towards God's spiritual agape. So God and his love remain uniquely agape. Our fallen carnal flesh is irredeemable. So we have to figure out how to abandon it and let our redeemed spirit souls rise to God. The literalists would agree that the song is erotic, and yet it points to appropriate biblical eros for a husband and a wife in the context of committed marriage. So I'm going to give a shout out to both camps, and I'm going to say that I've learned a great deal from both and benefited in my journey to love others better, to be loved by God more. Uh, how do I understand the song? I've benefited greatly from a lot of their work. Each of the approaches brings value to the table uh, for lonely people uh, who've been abused and abandoned, to whom relationships have been dangerous and destructive. But I've come to the conclusion that both of these camps really miss the, the larger purpose of the Song of Songs. Back to my earlier question, is a song erotic? Or better, is God's love only agape and never eros? See, I'm going to suggest that God's love is united, perfect, agape, and eros. Uh, heavenly eros. Uh, heavenly agape. Perfect agape. Perfect eros like Adam and Eve experienced in the garden. And we're going to pick this up in the next podcast. Um, I've covered most of this in my recent Valentine's podcast series, but it's well worth going again uh, for, for those of you who found the Gospel Rant and, and are sticking with us. Uh, by the way, keep following us. We appreciate that. So if, hopefully you're jazzed. We're going to pick this up in the next podcast. I want to acknowledge LifeAudio.com, their platform, their support, and help us get the word out. Make sure that you intentionally follow us on whatever podcast platform you use. Share the link with others you think who might find this interesting. Pass it on to your Bible study group, your small group, your church. Like I said, uh, 
check out The Kiss of God, the book that, that Colleen Pepper and I wrote 15 years ago. Check it out on Amazon, on the Song of Songs. It's a great read. All right? Take heart, child of God. <laughs>